Welcome to GPD's podcast series, In Beta, where we ask the big questions about human rights in the digital age. I'm Charles Bradley, GPD's Executive Director, and today's episode is all about businesses. You might remember that a few months back, in response to a government request for data in a murder trial, the retail giant Amazon filed a motion in court arguing that its voice recognition assistant, Alexa, enjoys First Amendment rights under the US Constitution. And this isn't a one-off or a strange aberration. Last year, both Apple and Microsoft took the US government to court over human rights. You're also seeing companies like Facebook publicly coming out against network disruptions in parts of Africa. So there's a definite trend here. In certain circumstances, big tech companies are behaving like human rights defenders. What makes the picture a bit more complicated is that, of course, businesses aren't always the good guys in these scenarios. As civil society, we often have to challenge practices by businesses which endanger or violate human rights, whether that's intrusive data collection, censorship or surveillance. I think this is partly why some civil society organisations can be reluctant to work with businesses. When we think about what motivates civil society advocacy, I suppose we think about altruism, or a kind of social purpose that's above considerations of profit. Businesses are obviously different. For many, their primary motivation is always going to be the bottom line. It's clear they can't be the same as civil society, but it's also clear that, whether we like it or not, businesses do have a huge role to play in the fight for human rights. For one thing, they own and manage the infrastructure that underpins the internet, and they develop and run the products and platforms through which we organise and express ourselves. So in this episode, we'll be posing the question, can a business be a human rights defender? And to discuss it with me, I'm delighted to welcome Michael Samway. Michael is the former Vice President and Deputy General Counsel for Yahoo, where he set up their celebrated Business in Human Rights program. These days, he's an adjunct professor at Georgetown University, where he teaches and writes on free expression and privacy issues on the internet. And he's also the founder and president of the Business and Human Rights Group and has advised companies including Airbnb, Facebook, LinkedIn, Millicom and Yahoo. Michael, welcome to the show. So tell me, why do you think businesses are increasingly taking a stand for human rights online? Uh, Thank you, Charles, and thanks for uh, inviting me to this improvised uh, recording studio here in Brussels at RightsCon 2017. It's good to see you and I'm honoured to be a guest on the podcast. Um, the question about Alexa, um, let's talk first about pushback. Um, and the first question for companies that receive an order, so in this case Amazon, is to uh, have a good sense of their legal obligations. So is it a lawful order on its face? What are some of the mechanics? Um, is there, you know, does the court have jurisdiction? Uh, and so on. But the question I think you're getting at is kind of what are the values underlying um, these type requests to technology companies, Amazon in this case, uh, but there are similar requests from uh, law enforcement, from government agencies to technology companies uh, in other uh, countries all around the world. So the different values, um, to name a few, uh, there's public safety, which might be about common crimes. Um, could be national security related, could be counterterrorism. Um, there's a question about whether it's an ongoing investigation, kind of long term, or whether there's the potential, whether it's uh, potentially imminent harm, you know, risk to uh, property or, or human life. Companies will look uh, at those values, evaluate kind of the rights behind the law and the order itself. They'll also look, and this is kind of goes to the Amazon case. Uh, 
at values and rights like privacy and free expression. So the Amazon case, uh, as it happens, is actually a free expression uh, case and based on the First Amendment, as it happens, um, Amazon withdrew the motion because the, uh, the data on the Echo were, as you know, um, voluntarily offered by the person of interest. So Amazon didn't uh, have to fight that any longer. Uh, but there's also the kind of well-publicized Apple FBI case and Bernardino um, from, uh, from the uh, terrorist incident, domestic terrorist incident there. The underlying value and right was privacy, um, argued through the lens of encryption. Um, there's the uh, Microsoft Ireland case. Again, the value uh, or the right here is privacy. That was argued through the lens of jurisdiction. And you know, the technical argument was on statutory interpretation of the Stored Communications Act, um, but fundamentally a privacy case. The most uh, now most well-known or one of the most well-known um, of, uh, cases is the Yahoo decision to file uh, a claim against the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, um, uh, a secret court, in 2008. Um, that became uh, more fully public uh, after the Snowden revelations in 2013. So you saw Yahoo uh, making the case basically constitutionally challenging the prison program. So those are some um, thoughts on pushback values, recognizing that there's always uh, a public safety uh, component, uh, or potentially, or a national security component, uh, and privacy for expression, at least in our space, in the digital space. Thanks, Michael. That's really interesting, sort of looking at examples of pushback from specific companies. But let's just come back to the bigger question. You know, what, what does this mean at a broader conceptual level? So you had initially asked me, um, when we were discussing this earlier, uh, in the context of Alexa and the Amazon case, not only about pushback uh, that, that companies engage in with respect to governments in certain cases, but the concept of companies as human rights defenders, um, which is a, is a fascinating idea. And I think it brings us back to the uh, question of what the role of business is in society, kind of more broadly, what are businesses' obligations with respect to human rights, uh, which then takes us back again to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So December 10th, 1948, it's approved not unanimously, um, uh, which is an interesting point, not unanimously, uh, but overwhelmingly by the UN General Assembly. And this is the first document in the post-1648, so the post-Westphalian kind of international order uh, that explains that human rights do not come from the king, they don't come from the state, and they don't come from God, but they're inherent in people because of the concept of human dignity. Um, so the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, together with its implementing treaties, uh, and in our case in the tech sector, most importantly, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, um, together form the foundation of the modern business and human rights movement. What we saw then from, from the 40s onward is not much movement in the business and human rights space. In the 1970s, the United Nations kind of took up the call to try to draft and codify um, law around business and human rights um, unsuccessfully. But at the same time, you had more public awareness, indigenous rights, supply chain issues, labor issues, environmental issues, security issues. 
and then eventually security, uh, uh, technology sector issues. And those were focused on censorship and surveillance. Um, now, if you, if you kind of take yourself back to the early 2000s, so this is the era where there's clearly awareness on kind of the labor side, on the environmental side, on the security services side, indigenous rights side, um, we're beginning to have companies uh, become global companies in the technology sector. This is the nature of the internet. Companies, in a sense, flip a switch and become global. Um, the overwhelming uh, sense of things in Silicon Valley at the time um, was that this technology was transformative, even democratizing, and Rebecca McKinnon in her book Consent of the Network <laughs> refers to it as sprinkling freedom juice on countries. And that really was the sense that this really could be incredibly empowering. Um, and there was truth in that. What technology companies learned is that the other side of the same coin is that governments could and would use the same tools to spread propaganda, to censor, to surveil, uh, and ultimately create a position, uh, 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 circumstances where companies um, could be held to be complicit in government abuses of human rights. Um, so that's, that's the setting. China ended up being the tipping point on the censorship and surveillance um, uh, point. And 2005, so if we take ourselves now to the mid-2000s, 2005 was a year of two important decisions in the business and human rights uh, world, uh, one general and one specific to the tech sector. Uh, the general one is that UN Secretary General Kofi Annan at the time um, appointed Harvard government professor John Ruggie to be UN Special Representative on Business and Human Rights. And uh, John and his excellent team put together over consecutive three-year mandates um, the, the uh, framework that we're both now quite familiar with, the respect, uh, protect, respect, remedy framework. And so protect was the government duty to protect human rights. Respect was the corporate responsibility to respect human rights. And then the third pillar is there's a need to provide remedy in the case of breach of those rights. So the words chosen were, were uh, chosen very carefully uh, by, by John Ruggie. Um, the duty to protect, the responsibility to respect. Um, clearly they're different. Um, and I think one of, um, one of the keys is not to over-lawyer it but to recognize that both governments and companies have a clear obligation. Um, and this, while not law, was unanimously uh, approved by the UN Human Rights Council, has become good practice, is on its way likely to becoming, uh, or arguably customary law, has been adopted and accepted by a number of companies uh, around the world, or, or hundreds, if not more. Um, the challenge is that that was general. For the ICT sector, it was the Global Network Initiative, the discussions for which began uh, these loose discussions in late 2005, um, so an important year uh, in business and human rights. And those discussions ultimately led to the development of GNI, uh, the standards, the evaluative mechanism, um, the shared learning, the collective advocacy. So 
one of the things that we have seen uh, in the years since GNI was launched in the fall of 2008 is the growth in the number of members civil society, uh, including from the Global South, and the growth in the number of companies, uh, including this week with the announcement on, uh, on Tuesday that seven European telcos would be joining uh, with a global footprint of across the world of more than 1.5 billion users. Great. That's a really useful explanation of how the business and human rights framework has developed and the principles and obligations which underpin it. I suppose my next question is about how, as a human rights defender, we should be engaging on these issues. Should we be making the business case for respecting human rights, for example, by showing companies how, say, a good privacy policy can ultimately help them be more profitable? Or should we be framing the conversation in terms of the moral and social obligations of businesses? Um, good question. So to uh, kind of to simplify it, if you can think about the kind of the carrot and the stick um, approach. And the beginning with the stick, um, you can look at kind of human rights um, uh, issues related to companies as a business risk, a risk management question. Um, and I think we're seeing this more and more. Um, there are also the kind of the traditional methods of advocacy, public pressure on a CEO or on a board, shareholder pressure can come from shareholder resolutions, shareholder litigation, individual lawsuits, um, companies recognize that you know, brand value is at stake. So there's brand risk, reputational risk. There's clearly the cost of crisis consultants, lobbyists, lawyers, you know, which for a large company can run into the multiple millions of dollars. Um, there's bad press. I think one of the uh, kind of the long-term fears on the sort of the, the stick side um, here would be bad legislation. So something that shapes the industry long-term in a way that um, isn't favorable uh, you know, for, the, uh, for the company. Now, is that effective as, as a method of engagement? Sometimes. Um, I think we ultimately need more research to quantify the, kind of the business effect um, the business case, uh, and you know there there are a few new places. Um, there's the Center for Business and Human Rights at uh, NYU Stern. Uh, there's uh, Berkeley Haas's uh, Human Rights and Business Initiative. There's the University of Oklahoma Law School uh, Center for International Business and Human Rights. Um, Harvard's Berkman Klein Center has been around for quite some time, and if I could mention also the university that I'm affiliated with, Georgetown University's Master of Science and Foreign Service program, perhaps these are, are you know, platforms for more quantitative research um, on, on the business case. Now, on the carrot side, um, I think there's a good case to be made that in particular, since the Snowden revelations, that the landscape has shifted, and you're beginning to see uh, CEOs and executives uh, and companies uh, overall um, recognizing privacy um, in the digital space, for example, uh, as an asset, and not just as a risk management issue, but as a differentiator, a, a competitive advantage, uh, where companies that are good shepherds of our data um, are the companies that are going to be long-term more successful from a bottom-line perspective. Our lives become more digitized. Um, we're digital, everything is on our, our smart device, and companies recognize that um, there's a lot at risk, uh, but that there's also an opportunity uh, to be kind of the best and most responsible with respect to the collection, 
the use, the sharing, deletion uh, of data. Thanks, Michael. Now, these these kind of issues aren't just theoretical for you. After all, you you actually founded the Business Human Rights Program at Yahoo some years back, which um, you know has become something of a, a of an industry gold standard. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the program? I'm sort of interested in where it came from, what, what and what a sort of approach it took. Sure. Well, I, I um, should say I spent ten years at Yahoo from 2000 to 2010, so um, have. Uh, not been inside the company for some time. Uh, the the team that I led um, there was nearly 100 professionals, um, legal professionals around the globe in probably two dozen jurisdictions. And in the the second half of uh, my my career, such as it was at Yahoo, um, I became much more involved in public policy issues involving um, technology and, and human rights questions. So. About six months before um, the launch of the Global Network Initiative, which I can talk a little bit more about, um, Yahoo kind of recognizing uh, that it needed to kind of redouble its commitment to human rights um, after learning some tough lessons in international markets um, around the world as a as a pioneer in in, uh, in, a, uh, in many of those markets, including places like China we launched Yahoo's Business and Human Rights Program, built on seven pillars, um, which I, I, uh, I heard um, Yahoo's current uh, Business and Human Rights lead repeat uh, the other day. And so there's this uh, sustained ability um, to them, um, it seems. The first is executive commitment, which is the tone from the top that an executive team, uh, the board, uh, the CEO uh, commits to. And um, the second is having a dedicated team that's responsible for human rights inside a company and making sure that that team receives cross-functional input. So that means that it's not only sort of a public policy or legal function, but that it gets input from the engineering teams, the technical teams, the sales teams, the teams on the ground that run the operations, uh, gets feedback from the experts, and also essentially disseminates um, the, uh, the expertise that is is then accumulated inside the business and human rights team um, to others outside uh, of that core group, uh, but spread throughout the country, uh, the company. The third pillar is that that uh, we created high-level principles. Um, those, and I can talk again uh, about this separately, based on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the implementing treaties, in particular the ICCPR, UN guiding principles, uh, the Global Network Initiative principles. Um, and then also operational guidelines. So taking those high-level principles and translating them into kind of day-to-day policies and practices. So everything from privacy policy to law enforcement response policies um, to training manuals to escalation paths um, that describe clearly what happens when X type of demand comes in and there are trigger terms, for example, that suggest it may uh, involve political uh, activity, um, where does that go inside the company? So creating all those policies that really turn this kind of principle into practice. The fourth pillar uh, of the program was to uh, create a touch point inventory. So essentially find all the intersection points between the business, the products and the services that the company offered, and human rights issues. Um, so doing a landscape review and, and determining where are the 
the pressure points. You know, where, where are we going to look for problems? Where should we anticipate challenges? Um, and then how do we build a structure and an architecture around that that allows us to make responsible decisions? We also, uh, you know, in that kind of uh, same pillar, created a clearinghouse so that play, the issues did come to the right place, they'd come back to the dedicated team. The fifth pillar uh, is conducting human rights impact assessment, something uh, you know well from the UN uh, Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. So human rights impact assessments essentially uh, form the homework that a company should do on a new market, a new product, an acquisition, alteration of an existing product. Um, any company operation, activity, service, product offering that will intersect with a human rights issue. Um, do your homework, understand it, understand the normative framework, identify risks and anticipated risks based on where the business is going, and then develop a strategy based on that. That might, you know, the strategy might involve server location, it might involve more expertise on the ground, it might involve, you know, encrypting a product when that wasn't in the original plans. And there's a back and forth, of course, with the business on that because what's human rights protective um, may live in tension uh, and often does with the speed, for example, of the business. Um, and by bringing the human rights awareness, we basically raise on the priority list for a company the value and the importance of human rights from a normative, normative kind of ethical perspective, but then also returning to your, your business case question from a business perspective. And the sixth pillar is, is stakeholder engagement, and that's an internal and external exercise. So internally, I think often overlooked by companies is engaging with your own employees, is getting feedback um, from all functional areas of the company. And we're seeing more and more uh, in the technology sector that employees are engaging on issues, on international issues, and this is, you know, true uh, on immigration issues, for example, but also true on privacy questions. Um, and the coders and engineers in the tech sector who are who are uh, kind of creating the back end uh, that drives, you know, all the product success on the front end, um, often have very clear views on uh, topics of rights, uh, privacy, whether it's uh, from their own background. Uh, or their own interests in building something um, that is secure, that secures uh, customers' data. Externally, um, and it's often a new area for, for young companies, um, it is engaging with civil society, with human rights groups, engaging with socially responsible investors, engage, engaging with academics, um, with governments, with activists, with consumers. And that engagement leads to... Uh, to trust exchanges of ideas, to advice, um, you know, building relationships, and is essential um, to, to bring in outside feedback um, for uh, ultimately building responsible decision-making inside a company. And then the seventh pillar is building an accountability framework, both inside the company and then through kind of outside interaction. So inside, um, how are you, you know, creating sort of limits to who has access to data, as one example. Um, how do you create a system that checks who's gone into someone's account? There's, um, of course, um, legitimate access, it may be for customer care, it may be for uh, other internal human resources um, purposes, but that should be, you know, there should be a, a set of policies 
um, and the company should be able to monitor that. Similarly, uh, we felt we needed to engage an external um, accountability framework, and that comes through uh, the Global Network Initiative, which I can talk about separately. So ultimately, the idea was to build kind of sustainable architecture inside the company so that the company kind of long-term could make responsible decisions. That's really interesting to hear about the the comprehensive approach uh, that Yahoo decided to take. And Yahoo's program was a pioneer then, and, and, and actually it, it continues to be. At GPD, one of our key focuses, is on gr- fostering greater collaboration between different stakeholder groups. And in the sixth pillar, you talked a little bit about reaching out to external stakeholders. So my question is, um, what do you see as the main obstacles to civil society and businesses working together? My kind of first words of advice, I guess, to, to civil society, to, to um, constituencies outside companies, is to have a clear picture of the advocacy landscape. So to have kind of this mental map of uh, what the different uh, kind of mechanisms are to address, you know, what may be uh, uh, either company direct violations of human rights or complicity uh, with government violations of human rights. Um, Because there's a place for different forms of advocacy. Uh, Each is valuable, uh, but it's important to understand kind of the spectrum um, and understand where kind of your strengths are and where you can fit into that. Um, Kind of looking at it both as kind of immediate advocacy, so there's a significant harm that's happening uh, and, you know, we... Uh, as the advocacy community need to change something and we need to do it in short order. You know, there's, there are kind of the traditional methods. There's press coverage, um, there's legislative uh, advocacy. So, you know, you lobby your legislator um, because, you know, at least in the U.S. Uh, where you have the power, let's say, of Congress to, to call hearings, um, have subpoena power, um, that can qu- quickly get the attention of companies that are grassroots campaigns, uh, shareholder filings, you know, uh, resolutions, lawsuits, individual lawsuits. Um, so for immediate impact, you know, often the approach is, uh, and it can be quite effective, is to be loud, to be well organized, uh, and to have a story, right, to build it around a narrative. And you can see um, short order campaigns that are, that are deeply kind of like impactful on company policy. You can get something changed. But I contrast that with um, long-term influence and engagement, um, which I think is uh, um, ultimately more productive and effective. You know, sometimes they can be used in concert, and I think that um, that also can be an effective strategy. But long-term influence and engagement um, is most effective when kind of there are two components. The first is building trust. Um, civil society and companies building trust uh, and then creating a path for turning that trust into practical solutions. Um, so kind of the first component, so how do you build trust? Well, you do it through building personal and professional relationships. Um, that's done over years. Um, it's done through the ups and downs and peaks and valleys and ebb and flow um, of any strong relationship, personal or professional and that's necessary. And there are individuals at companies, um, you need to identify them, find the issue leaders, find the champions for your issues. Um, it's becoming 
uh, we're still in the early days of, of business and human rights in the technology sector. Um, but the, those leaders, for example, in many cases are here at RightsCon in Brussels this year. Um, and uh, it's important to seek them out uh, and begin to build those relationships. Um, the second component, of course, is taking the relationship and, in a sense, putting it in a forum, creating some path where you can turn idea into practical solution. Uh, and there's a unique place to do that today in the tech sector, um, the ICT sector, and that's uh, through the Global Network Initiative, um, which is, was launched in 2008 um, and is built on a couple core tenets. The first is the creation of a set of standards. Um, so these are the free expression and privacy principles that GNI has elaborated. Um, and the implementation guidelines that go along with those. The second is an evaluation mechanism to measure company performance against those standards. And the, the third is the creation of uh, an ideas exchange, I'll call it, which is basically shared learning, which is done um, you know, to a, a great extent internally. So that's where you have scores of civil society organizations, um, a dozen companies now, you know, academics, investors, uh, in a closed and safe setting, exchanging in confidence in, in this uh, confidential setting, ideas, recommendations, criticism, um, with a view towards uh, the companies making uh, more responsible decisions. There's also kind of an external component where GNI hosts uh, public-facing shared learning uh, forums. The, the uh, the fourth kind of tenet of, of GNI is then to create a platform for collective advocacy. So when you have these four constituencies, companies, civil society, academics, and investors together, you've created a fairly powerful uh, group of entities um, to lobby, to make statements, to plan strategy, uh, to push behind the scenes, sometimes publicly, uh, for good legislation or improved legislation, uh, to advocate for the release of a dissident to criticize a shutdown. Um, and so that's, uh, to me, the kind of single most powerful place for these issues um, to go, to be addressed, and ultimately to be resolved. And what you see kind of inside GNI is trust, again, the essential element formed over more than a decade. Uh, and then you see a path towards responsible decision making better policies, better practices, better decisions. Um, and then there's a complementary ecosystem um, that works very nicely with, um, with GNI. And I would put at the top of that list ranking digital rights because you have both um, trust that's been built up um, between uh, the researchers and company issue leaders and, and uh, uh, tech and human rights champions inside the companies. And you also have a path because the indicators also give companies a good outline, particularly young companies, um, of the steps that are necessary to be responsible decision makers in free expression and privacy. And of course, you know, in the ecosystem, you also have the Freedom Online Coalition, um, you know, RightsCon itself, uh, where we are now. So these are all, uh, to me, ways to think about kind of immediate impact engagement but perhaps more importantly, um, long-term anyway, 
is how you build sustainable engagement with companies. It's really trust and then a path um, towards practical solutions. I think you make a really important point there about the role of individuals in these processes, which is you know, easy to forget. You know, you might be engaging as a human rights defender with a company with a thousand employees, but often it comes down to, to one person who's responsible, uh, responsible for a particular issue who will be making the case for human rights within that organisation. And it's, it's important not to lose sight of the kind of human aspect to these processes and, and how relationship building is key to any engagement. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time, and, but this has been a fascinating discussion with plenty to think about and, and to follow up on. Um, for our listeners, if you're interested in any of the examples Michael brought up in this episode, um, like the Global Network Initiative and Ranking Digital Rights, you can find out more about those on the GPD website. Just search for episode three in beta. Michael, thanks again for joining us and to our listeners, tune in next time.